Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Judd, as he's called. Dr. Judd is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist, neuroscientist, habit change expert, and author. He's a professor in the School of Public Health and the Medical School at Brown University. His 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has been viewed more than 19 million times. He's the author of several books, including The Craving Mind, the New York Times bestseller, Unwinding Anxiety, and a new book. It's coming out on February 20th, 2024. It's called The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. Dr. Judd, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, I wanna start with something that I learned from reading your book, Unwinding Anxiety, that I would say is one of those, what, really, could this be true? Which is that anxiety, in your view, from your perspective, is a quote unquote, bad habit that we can break. And as somebody who has worked with my own anxiety my whole life, I never thought of it as a habit. I always thought mm -hmm. of it as a condition. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to understand and have our listeners track with us how you came to this discovery. I realize it's a big opening question here that anxiety could be looked at as a quote unquote bad habit. Mm -hmm. Well, it actually started with me struggling. So I certainly had my own uh, run-ins with anxiety I used to get panic attacks during residency but i was getting anxious with trying to help my own patients with anxiety because prescribing medications you know the best ones out there it's about one in five that show a significant reduction in symptoms the term is called number needed to treat and it's 5.2 meaning you know it's about one in five so basically i was playing the medication lottery i didn't know which of the next five patients that came in was gonna benefit and what to do with the other four. And I started wondering, you know, what the heck I could do to help my patients uh, besides prescribed medications. And my lab at the time had been studying habit change. And I bring that in because I started looking at the scientific literature and it turns out that back in the 1980s, uh, ironically, around the same time that Prozac was first released, uh, there was a psychologist named Thomas Borkovec who suggested that anxiety could be driven through a process called negative reinforcement. And when I read that, I, I had this aha moment because negative reinforcement is what I've been studying in terms of ha habit formation and habit change. And I'd never thought to apply that, um, that mechanistic um, perspective to anxiety itself. And the way it works is that the feeling of anxiety tends to drive the mental behavior of worrying. And that was the big connection that I hadn't seen before. 
uh, until I read about it. And then I saw it all the time in my patients in my clinic where it's like the feeling of anxiety drives this mental behavior of worrying. And what the research had shown was that it's rewarding enough that worrying because people feel like they're in control, even if it doesn't give them any more control than they had before, it makes them feel like they're in control or at least doing something. And from a brain perspective, that's enough of a reward for our brain to say, hey, remember that behavior, do it again the next time you feel anxious. Okay, I think I'm with you in terms of I feel the sensations of anxiety, and now I'm going to start worrying. Okay, I have control over whether or not I continue worrying or I don't continue worrying. Well, any behavior can be learned, and any behavior can be unlearned if it can be learned. And so we have some level of control, and we also don't have, we may not have control. And where we can gain control is by learning how the system works as compared to trying to force the system. So I'm sure there are plenty of people that have noticed that worry isn't that helpful in their life and they just try to stop worrying. And if they've tried that, they've probably also noticed that just trying to apply willpower doesn't work so well. And so here I would say we have control once we know how the controller works. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will, I'll start by saying, and we can double click on this later if it's helpful, but the, the willpower piece seems to be where most people have been focused, whether it's anxiety or overeating or anything, you know, in terms of changing any behavior. But from a neuroscience standpoint, Willpower is not even in the equations when it comes to habit formation and habit change. And that, that makes really good sense to me and has also been my instinct. As someone who has a really strong will, I have not found it helpful when the worrying train is off into the races. Mm -hmm. So here, you know, what we've found over the years is that just understanding how the process works is a really helpful start for people. And our brains are set up to not like uncertainty. So uncertainty is a driver for us to do something. You know, if you think of our ancestors and they heard some rustling out in the bushes outside of the cave or the, you know, or whatever, they couldn't just roll over and go to sleep and say, oh, it's probably nothing, <laughs> you know, because it probably could be something that's going to eat them. And so our brains are set up to really try to make minimize uncertainty. And what that does is give us this mechanism so that we will go and get information. Now, that's all well and good from a survival standpoint, but in modern day, when we take that uncertainty and we apply it to future experiences where we don't actually have control or we can't actually get information, that's where we get this evolutionary bottleneck where, you know, think of the uncertainty piece. That's what drives fear often. And fear is a very helpful survival mechanism. But when you apply fear to the future, then we, we tend not to do so well from a survival standpoint. Now, just to be clear, planning and thinking about the future is one thing that can actually be helpful, and that's more recent evolutionary mechanism that humans have. But when you take that and you mix it together with fear, when it becomes fear of the future as compared to planning of the future, that's when we start to get stuck in these worry loops. And what's been shown is that when we worry, we actually have more trouble planning and thinking into the future. And we just feel pretty bad right now. All right, Dr. Judd, here, I think most people are tracking with you. And they're saying that a lot of the to themselves inside, a lot of the things I worry about are very uncertain. Mm -hmm. There are no answers. If I could find answers, my worry, oh, go look this up, go do this, go do that find the answer from this person. How are they really feeling about you? Get more certainty about economics, about future weather patterns, about the political situation, all kinds of things, uncertain, uncertain, uncertain. So that's the information that comes back. We're mm -hmm. left with our worry that isn't being productive 
Now what? So this is where we can start to map out when we are getting stuck in a worry habit loop. And so there are three elements for any habit loop to form. Uh, the first element's a trigger, the second's a behavior, and the third is a reward from a neuroscience standpoint. I like to think of it pragmatically as a result. And so if we map this out with regard to anxiety, the, the feeling of anxiety is the trigger for the mental behavior of worrying. And that mental behavior of worrying results in this feeling of control, with the, which then feeds back through this negative reinforcement loop to say, hey, next time you feel anxious, you should worry. And so there we can just start to map out these processes. Um, I can give an example if it's helpful, like with, sure. with a clinic patient. So I am um, thinking of a patient who was referred to me for anxiety, you know, uncertainty. I have no idea what, you know, what his anxiety was related to. And when he walked in my office door, he looked pretty anxious. And so when I started taking his history, he was describing how he had, he'd been anxious. He was about 40 years of age when he came to see me and he had pretty severe anxiety from for the last 30 years since he was about 10. He used to get pretty severe panic attacks and his panic was getting so bad that he was getting panic attacks when driving on the highway and then he was avoiding driving on the highway. And so I just sat down after taking his history, sat down with him and just pulled out a sticky note, like a five by seven yellow sticky note. And I wrote on their trigger behavior result. And I said, let me see if I've got this right. These thoughts that you might get in a car accident that trigger you to avoid driving on the highway, which results in you not having a panic attack. And he said, yeah, that's right. And then I drew arrows between those three and showed that that's actually a loop. And his eyes got really wide and he said, I never knew that my brain worked that way. And so for me, I find it very helpful as a good place to start is just to help people map out some of these loops that they might be stuck in and help them understand that this is a survival mechanism that just might have gotten a little miswired in modern day. Can you share with us from your own experience a loop that you were able to identify and then how you broke that repetitive pattern? Sure. I, I'll think of one, um, fortunately, I'm thinking I haven't had a, pan, a severe panic attack in a while, <laughs> but I'm thinking of a time when I was in the ocean and was, you know, not too long ago and was kind of caught in the middle of some wave sets that were kind of coming down on my head. And so, um, you know, starting to panic a little bit because, you know, not so helpful if you can't breathe. And I noticed that that panic was coming up and, you know, I'd been at this point, I'd been practicing mindfulness for about 25 years. And so I could start to notice those as thoughts and I could start to notice the feeling of panic. And by noting those, I could also see that that wasn't going to actually help me in that moment. It was actually going to make things worse. Panicking was going to use up my energy and not help me, you know, do what I needed to do. And so just noting those and being aware of them uh, helped me, you know, not get caught up in that, you know, in getting into a, into a panic cycle and then, you know, go back up for air and do what I needed to do. And then, you know, obviously I, I made it through that. When it comes to generalized anxiety, sometimes I think it's hard to know what the trigger is. Like, you know, it's the end of the day. Oh, now I'm not working anymore. I have a chance to just sort of be with myself. And I'm not even sure what I'm feeling anxious about what happened. Was it what I said during XYZ conversation? I could have done this or why? Is it what this other person's thinking? Is it who knows? So mm -hmm. Do we need to know what the trigger is to start to break uh, and unwind, as you say, anxiety? I'm glad you bring that forward because that is often what the logical brain thinks. It's like, oh, if I could just figure the, find the triggers, I could deal with them, I could avoid them, I could work with them, I could change them. When you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, the triggers are only the thing that sets the wheel in motion but they're not what strengthens it or weakens it. And so from a, from a reinforcement learning standpoint, this is called reward-based learning for a reason, because if something's rewarding, we're gonna keep doing it. And if it's not rewarding, we're gonna stop doing it. And so here, 
the triggers are actually the least important part of the equation. And with generalized anxiety, for example, people often wake up in the morning and just feel anxious first, you know, upon waking, and then they start to worry and then, you know, spiral out throughout the entire day. So more often than not, most often, I would say, they can't actually find specific triggers. And it just, you know, it just drives the cycle even more. So often just that feeling of anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying. And when we can zoom in on the worrying itself, uh, we can work and see that it's a cycle. We can not only help to kind of unwind the behavior of worrying, but we can also learn to change our relationship to the feeling of anxiety itself. Let's talk about that because I think it's one thing to interrupt the pattern of worry, that mental addiction, if you will. Okay, this isn't helping. But now I have all these feelings in my body. They're very uncomfortable. They're mm -hmm. very uncomfortable. I feel, you know, you, people could use different words. I feel dysregulated. I feel butterflies in my stomach. I feel a shakiness inside, wobbliness inside, whatever the language might be to describe this feeling of, you know, uh, I'm not solid inside. Oh my, what, what do I do with all of that? All of those sensations. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that can be helpful is just to understand what our survival brain is going to want us to do. And so, and it's going to try to drive us in a certain direction. So anything that's unpleasant is by nature going to drive our brain to say, hey, do something to make this unpleasant thing go away. You know, that's the basis of negative reinforcement. And so just knowing that helps us start to understand and map out the process. So once we've been able to recognize that and map that out, we can then start to see what our, our habitual reactions are to that unpleasantness. And typically, you know, I, especially in these days, I see a lot of people distract themselves, you know, so I love um, the term that Cornell West gave our, our smartphones. He calls them these weapons of mass distraction where, you know, so often we have a distraction tool right at our fingertips. And so whether it's, you know, checking our social media, our email, checking the news feed, doing whatever, there's something out there that can surely distract us for a few moments. So just recognizing what some of these old habits are and how well they serve us uh, is a good help, is a helpful start. Because if we can see that they're, they're actually just serving to give us this brief distraction, but actually not helping us change our relationship to these unpleasant sensations. They're just going to keep us stuck in that cycle. And at the same time, we're not going to learn what I think is a critical survival tool in modern day, which is distress tolerance. Meaning, you know, if there's something unpleasant, we can actually learn to be with things that are unpleasant, like emotionally unpleasant, uh, unpleasant thoughts, et cetera. But in modern day, more and more and more, we're being trained you know, in very subtle ways to not tolerate any type of distress, whether it's you know, a little bit of physical pain, oh, quick, take some, you know, take a painkiller, whether it's emotional pain, quick, distract yourself or eat some food or something like that, as compared to saying, Hey, you know, discomfort, that's actually, you know, part of life. Not that we should, you know, look to make our lives um, you know, to to kind of wallow in in suffering, but just to see that this is a natural part of life and that we don't have to run from it all the time. Now, I want to talk more about uh growing our distress tolerance, but before we do, let's talk more about distraction. It works it seems for a few, it seems like if you, if I watch a movie, you know, uh, if I scroll on my phone, if I do that for a period of time, I notice I kind of feel better afterwards. Like I'm, and I think, huh, did I waste a couple hours or did I somehow self-medicate quote unquote in a way that didn't, it didn't actually cause any harm. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad happened. I didn't go to open the refrigerator and, you know, eat a bunch of stuff or smoke a bunch of stuff or say mean things. I just, you know, played with my weapon of uh, mass distraction and I feel kind of better. So why do I feel better when I'm distracted and what's so bad about that? Yeah. So this isn't to say that there's something terrible about distraction. And sometimes that's the only mechanism that some people have at their fingertips, you know, in the moment, right? 
what um what it it doesn't help us with is learning to develop that distress tolerance and the other thing that it can develop is our dependence upon distraction and so there are a couple of things there that you know we can all explore in our own experience one is that we become uh, our our brains are set up to habituate to uh, different behaviors and so you know if my distraction tool is to look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram for example over time my brain's going to you know if i go to instagram every time i feel anxious my brain's going to say okay show me the cute puppies and then it's going to say okay i need cuter puppies because these are not cute enough anymore and then it says okay puppies and kittens you know puppies kittens and babies and you know you get the idea which is very similar to somebody starting to drink alcohol as a way to try to distract themselves from anxiety. Then they have to drink more and they become tolerant, et cetera. So it's the same mechanism. It's just slightly different from a chemical standpoint um, because alcohol is directly affecting the dopamine system, whereas these um, you know these behaviors are affecting the dopamine system, um, but not you know not specifically hitting the benzodiazepine receptors, for example. So I don't know if that gives you a little bit of a, a sense for you know how distraction can be helpful in the moment, uh, but might not be a long-term solution. You know, I think of it as you know if we have poison ivy and it itches and we scratch it, it might feel better in the moment, but it's actually going to keep that rash around for a while longer. Well, the reason I'm I'm bringing this up and I'm going to stick with it just for another moment is in unwinding anxiety, you talk about the importance of the disenchantment process mm -hmm. when we become disenchanted with whatever this is my language now whatever coping strategy we have to not feel quite so terrible to deal with our distress mm -hmm. and you know it's one thing i can understand getting disenchanted you use the example right now of uh, scratching the poison ivy it's it's easy to get for me to see getting disenchanted with that because the poison ivy spreads and the red thing gets much worse and it's all over my arm and face now and that's you know i don't want to do that and even with worrying i can see i'm getting so upset and i'm just you know becoming like a dark mess i don't want to do that i'm getting disenchanted but when i'm distracting myself i'm kind of going kind of quiet in a way mm -hmm. Help me get disenchanted with distraction, Dr. Judd. <laughs> well, it, and I think you're bringing up a really good point, which is, you know, if it's if it's helpful and we don't see the downsides to it, we're probably not going to get disenchanted with distraction. On the other hand, if there are moments where we try to distract ourselves and it doesn't work, or we don't have our tools of distraction, whether, you know, maybe you don't have our phone or maybe you know there's some reason that we can't distract ourselves then our brain really goes nuts and says hey i need my distraction you know where is it what are you going to do for me and things can actually get worse so there we get to learn about our dependence on these distraction tools and then we can start asking well is there a better way and that's where we start to become disenchanted with you know things you know if something doesn't work all the time i'm going to be less excited about it than if it worked all the time and so here i think the disenchantment comes when we can find something that is more reliable and at the same time helps us live a, a better life live a happier healthier life and i would suggest that learning how our mind works and learning how to work with our mind helps us not only be able to tolerate unpleasantness more, and so it it empowers us, but also helps us develop wisdom so we can generalize some of these learnings to other aspects of our lives. Okay, help us develop our distress tolerance. For those of us now who are, we're willing, we're interested, we get it, that uh, distraction uh, isn't really the, the best we can do. We're inspired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, our research has shown that the the first, well, there are a couple of steps. So I think of this as a three-step process. The first step is just mapping out whatever the issue is. So let's call, let's say anxiety and worry, because we've been talking about that. So if we're able to map out that when we feel anxious, we start to worry, uh, or and we can also use distraction as well, 
um, we can start to ask ourselves a question, which moves us into the next step, which is, what am I getting from this? And here, it's really interesting because we can look at modern psychology and say, well, why is this an important question? We can look at modern neuroscience, which actually highlights uh, these, their actual equations of behavior change, which focus very much on uh, what's called changing the reward value of a behavior. And we can also look as far back as Buddhist psychology, where you know, the Buddha is reported to have said, you know, karma is based on cause and effect. And so if you look at cause and effect, it's actually a very nice description of modern day psychology in terms of reinforcement learning. And what I mean by that is if we do a behavior and it's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If we do the behavior and we pay attention and it's not rewarding, we're going to become disenchanted with it and stop doing it. And there are actually explicit passages in the Pali Canon about this where you know, I'll, I'll summarize where the Buddha talks about exploring gratification to its end. And he said that that was, you know, he said, wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So that sounds kind of important. <laughs> and so we said, well, can we apply that to modern day? How does that work? And it's actually pretty simple. So for example, when my patients come in and they want to quit smoking, Instead of telling them to stop smoking, which they've all tried, you know, they tried their willpower and it hasn't worked, otherwise they wouldn't need to see me. Instead, I say, hey, pay attention as you smoke that cigarette and tell me just how good it is. And so I send them home and they come back and they, and they come back often with this wild-eyed look and they say, how did I not notice this before? And they describe how cigarettes tastes crappy. It feels like burning going into their lungs. It smelled really bad. As one patient put it, um, he said, all the cigarettes I smoked today were disgusting, right? He wasn't telling himself that they were disgusting. He simply paid attention. And so there's a great example of exploring gratification to its end, where he just paid attention as he smoked and he realized that cigarettes were actually pretty crappy. And that helped him become disenchanted with the cigarettes. We see the same thing with worrying. If we really look at worrying and ask, what am I getting from this? You know, it's not keeping my family member safe. It's not helping me solve a problem. Whatever our brain has told us that worrying is going to help us with, when we really look at it and see that it's not doing that, then we become disenchanted with it. And we've even seen this with, with eating and overeating, where we have people pay attention as they overeat. And it only takes 10 or 15 times for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to shift their behavior. So that's the second step. And I would say that is a critical step for helping people step out of these habit loops. Now, in your new book, The Hunger Habit, I was curious to see that you had a chapter on trauma. And I'm bringing that up at this point because when I, when I hear you talk about anxiety, I think of the nervous system being stuck in the past, mm -hmm. somehow stuck in the past. So I'm telling myself worrying doesn't work. I'm definitely disenchanted with it. It doesn't work. It makes me feel terrible. But it seems like this deep body-based nervous system thing is doing its own thing. And I, that's once again, I'm coming back to my very original question. Is this a condition or is it a addiction that I have a choice over that I can change. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested to see how you now are writing about trauma and if that impacts your views at all on habit change. Uh, it does. Absolutely. And so here, I, the, the best analogy that I've come up with is that it's kind of, our brain's kind of like a, a smoke detector in the kitchen. And when it's calibrated, when the smoke detector is calibrated correctly, it's going to help us detect when there's a fire on the stove versus boiling water and it's steam, right? Now, if that is not, if it's miscalibrated, it's going to go off and give us false alarms when there's actually no danger. And that's what I see with conditions like, and I'm not a huge fan of 
terms like conditions. <laughs> the only condition I think that we really have is the human condition, but there are you know, all these things that, that they use in psychiatry. So bear with me there. So when somebody's had a traumatic history, let's say, their, their brain is often miscalibrated in the sense that uh, they've had something very traumatic happen to them. And I say, you know, my heart goes out to anybody that's that's had a traumatic experience where they've kind of gotten their brain has kind of gotten locked in this in this danger signal where their brain is registering in modern day danger 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 when there might not actually be danger and that that causes two problems one is it's harder for them to see when there is actual danger because their brain is constantly saying this is dangerous this is dangerous this is dangerous and it's also you know putting them in this heightened state of arousal that's just not only unpleasant but can you know is is not not great for flourishing let me just put it that way and so the way i think about trauma is that just understanding how this works on a neurobiologic level can help us start to find ways that can help us recalibrate that system and one thing that I found helpful as a as a tool to work with some of my patients is to kind of help them see how that uh, that danger signal can actually be somewhat habitual, right? Because their brain is signaling danger when it's triggered by something that's not actually dangerous. When they see that, they can also take a moment to honor their past self, which often you know it it came up with the strategy in the moment to keep them safe and then it kept that strategy going forward and that strategy may not be as helpful for them now and the way i think of that is it's kind of like a pair of shoes that somebody put on and they fit at the time and it helped them not damage their feet but now they may have outgrown those shoes and those shoes may actually be hurting them in that sense and so being able to honor our past selves and you know and, and really give that you know that place in life it's due and say I, I did the best that i could in those times gives us the opportunity to open to the present moment and ask hey is this helping me now and if it's not uh open to being able to change the kind of the habitual behavior that comes with that hyper arousal i'm not saying it's easy but that can help us start to explore that as compared to just being stuck in it. Okay, so say a, a bit more about this and maybe you could give an example of someone that you've worked with who had a trauma history and it could be inherited family trauma or early mm -hmm. childhood trauma. And they say, you know, I understand conceptually what you're saying about honoring this, you know, old pair of shoes that I don't wanna wear anymore, it does not, fit. I don't want it. But my nervous system biology still has this wiring in it. And I haven't yet developed the distress tolerance you're talking about. I want to. So I want to hear more about that. But there's a lot of distress here that feels outside of my ability to, to work with it. It just goes off. It's unconscious. The, the calibration is so far off. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm thinking of uh, just a representative of of many people. So a patient that I think he was in his 60s uh, when we started talking about this, and he had had early childhood trauma, and his only, you know, as a kid, excuse me, as a kid, his only the only thing he had control over was his own mind, and so he started worrying as his coping mechanism because that was what made him feel like he had some semblance of control. And he had carried this forward with him for, you know, five, six decades. And when he, when we started talking about this, uh, he, he really, you know, this is where the shoes analogy came up. It was actually working with him. And he, you know, he realized that it was actually holding him back. And so what I do, what I you know, do with anybody that's struggling in this way is first find ways that they can ground themselves in those moments, right? And there are lots of wonderful techniques uh, that can help people ground, uh, whether it's bringing awareness externally, uh, 
I, I sometimes have people just use this mantra, feel my feet. I learned that from somebody years ago, where it's just like, you know, our feet tend to be a pretty safe place and they can help ground us. And so just bringing awareness to our feet for a few moments or taking taking some grounding breaths, or uh, you may be familiar with the five finger breathing exercise, where as we breathe in, we trace up the outside of our pinky. As we breathe out, we trace down. And in the course of five breaths, we can trace each finger. We can do that again, you know, pinky to thumb, thumb back to pinky over a course of 10 breaths, but something that helps us ground enough so we can ask a simple question, which is, am I actually in danger right now? And it's an important question, not just to ask conceptually, but to ask experientially. Look around and really show our brains what's actually happening so that our brain, which is saying danger, 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 can see, I mean, if there is danger there, right? if we're about to walk into a busy street or something, we can take appropriate action. But if there's no danger there, it helps our brain see very, very clearly that no, this is a this is a miscue. And when we're grounded a little bit, we can start to separate and kind of unwind that learned association between whatever the trigger was and this hyperarousal in our autonomic nervous system. And over time, that's where we can start to unwind it. So there are lots of techniques like EMDR and other practices that help people do this type of uh, dissociation, not dis dissociation is not the right word, unlearning. Uh, and in these even simple practices, simple grounding and simple mindfulness practices can be helpful here as well. But I find pairing that in the environment with that simple question is also really helpful for the rewiring piece. Okay, I'm going to ask you a really direct question, Dr. Judd. Do yeah. you think that anxiety is a mental addiction? Not necessarily. So the feeling of anxiety, I wouldn't so the feeling itself is just the feeling, right? If you you the definition that I learned in residency of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. And so here, I would look at the mental behavior of worrying. And for some people, they would swear that they are addicted to worrying. And so, you know, if you put the definition in continued use despite adverse consequences, you know, the consequences might not be terribly adverse, like we think about with, you know, some chemical substances, but they can be pretty adverse for someone, you know, if somebody's uh, worrying all the time to the point where it's interfering with their life. So I would say there's a spectrum. And for some people, they are so, you know, I would say they, they worry so much and it's interfering with their life so much, it might fit that definition, but not the feeling of anxiety. Right. Okay, good. I think that's a good, helpful uh, distinction. So in terms of being with, being with the distress of the feeling of anxiety, being mm. with it, is it uh, your experience working people that the more we're able to be with it, that that creates some kind of natural resolution? Being with it, being curious about it, feeling it, questioning it, wondering about it, dropping our attention into this feeling. What, what comes from that? My, my experience sometimes is that I can uh, spend a lot of time in that state. It doesn't necessarily just like, oh, and now it's turned into something else. It's like, oh, wow, okay, spending a lot of time here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. So here, here I'm going to actually go back to some of the ancient Buddhist psychology because I think it's really interesting some of the overlaps that we've seen between that and the modern psychology. And there's a there's a concept that's described as as dependent origination, and the details aren't important. But what it describes is what's called a cycle of samsara, this endless wandering. And in that cycle, there are a bunch of links 
but there are a couple that are really important. One is, you know, these, they describe these unpleasant or even pleasant feeling tones lead to craving, you know, because if something's pleasant, we crave more of it. If it's unpleasant, we have aversion, we crave less of it. But that leads to um, what some can be just can be translated as clinging, but also can be, the word is upadana, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, um, but it can also be translated as fuel or sustenance. And that is really important because if we think of a fire burning, and often uh, these are, you know, these cycles are, are, are described using the analogy of a fire. When a fire is burning, what keeps the fire burning is fuel or sustenance. And so when we have anxiety, think of anxiety as a fire. If we worry, that is like adding fuel to the fire. And so we can say, okay, how do I, how do I let this fire burn down? And that's through not adding more fuel to the fire. And so here, to get at your question, there are two ways that we can learn to work with the anxiety. One is to see if we're fueling it, right? Are we fueling it through distraction? Or are we fueling it through worrying? And if we are, those are behaviors that we have control over. We can explore those. We can become disenchanted with them and we can see what it's like not to distract ourselves. And on top of that, we can kind of add in, maybe think of it as is digging a fire line around the fire so it doesn't spread. Where we learn to, I think of this as um, bringing in curiosity as a superpower. I'll put it that way. And what I mean by that is that often when we feel anxious, we have this, oh no reaction. Oh no, here's anxiety. I need to make it go away. And that's where we do something, which actually just, you know, it's like blowing on the fire. It makes it worse. Instead, what if we flip that and we say, oh, and this is where, you know, phrases like the obstacle becomes the way or this stoic turn, um, turn of words that was attributed to Marcus Aurelius, you know, what stands in the way becomes the way. And what, what those makes those interesting is that we can look at anxiety and we can, instead of running away from it, we can ask ourselves, what happens if I turn toward it? And if we turn toward the experience and what helps us turn, we don't try to force ourselves to turn toward it, but we use that curiosity as that guiding hand that says, oh, what does anxiety feel like? Is it tightness? Is it burning? Where is it in my body? What, ha what happens when I actually turn toward it? We start to learn something really interesting and really important, which is that these feelings make up the concept of anxiety. And when we look at each element by itself, it's not nearly as scary as this big bad concept of anxiety. And on top of that, we start to notice that these sensations are constantly changing. So often we think, oh no, anxiety, it's gonna be here forever. But when we really turn and go, oh, well, is this sensation, what happens when I look at it? These things start to change and they're constantly changing. We can notice that change. And with that, we can start to learn, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought. I can actually learn to be with this. And this is where the ability to develop distress tolerance comes in. It comes from learning to uh, just lean in instead of run away. And when we lean in, that fear starts to dissolve somewhat because we can see what things actually are, right? We reduce the uncertainty. And we can also see that these things aren't permanent. They change on their own without us having to do anything. Okay, I like this fire metaphor. So if it's okay, I wanna make sure that I fully get it because I understand the notion that if you add worry fuel in the form of worry logs, the fire is gonna get bigger. I have a fireplace here where I, where I have natural logs and so I like to sit in front of it. So I get it. If I don't put the worry logs on, it's not gonna, it's gonna go out. Yeah. Now, you said distraction also is a way that we feed the fire. And that's where I had a moment of thinking, I don't understand that. How does distraction feed the fire? It's a good question. So 
I'm just trying to think how that would fit with the analogy because I think worry fits pretty well. Yeah. D distraction might be not paying attention. And so when when we don't pay attention, when we don't tend the fire, it's going to be more likely to spread if there is fuel around it. Okay. And so I don't know if that fits for okay, you. Okay, that but helps. I, yeah. So I would say when we distract ourselves, there might be other tinder in the box that's going to catch fire because we don't know how to manage it. And then we're curious about it where you could say that's a form of just sort of watching it change and go out on its own accord. And that's what happens that our, our curiosity is just, just that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And what I found from my own experience with anxiety is that when there is less fear around it, you know, certainly anxiety still comes up. I still get anxiety, but I, I'm okay with it. It's like, okay, here, this is pretty unpleasant. It's going to be here for a while. I don't know how long it's going to be here, but as long as I don't resist it, you know, there's this saying, what we resist persists. As long as I don't resist it, it's going to go on its own accord. I don't have to do anything and it may not stick around as long. Your new book, The Hunger Habit, looks at how we can look at this whole question of what's driving our cravings and our desires around food. In terms of the conversation we've had about anxiety, would you say this part of the conversation translates really well to issues of eating and food cravings, overeating, et cetera, and this part maybe doesn't map on quite so well, or it's all the same inner mechanisms? How do you look at it? Well, what our research has shown is that the mechanisms are pretty similar. So the reinforcement learning piece is actually based on these ancient survival mechanisms around eating. You know, we had to remember where food was. And so we learn where to find food through the mechanism of positive reinforcement, right? The triggers we see food, the behaviors we eat it, and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. And then this negative reinforcement piece, you know, where we learn to avoid danger comes into play in modern day. Actually, both of these come into play in modern day where we learn to associate food with, for example, with celebration. So how many times have we eaten food when we aren't hungry, right? That's not a, a survival mechanism per se, because our body is saying, hey, you know, not really hungry, but we're like, hey, this is a party, let's eat, right? And on top of that, we learn to eat food to comfort ourselves. That's where the term comfort food comes from or stress eating, where if we're bored, angry, sad, think of all the different emotions that we've learned to associate with eating as a distraction. And then we learn through negative reinforcement, oh, if I eat this food, I'm going to comfort myself. I'm going to feel better. So both of those are at play so much in modern day that there's a term that has been I don't know when the term came about, but recently there's a term called hedonic hunger that's used in scientific studies. It's a misnomer because we're not actually hungry, but it's highlighting moments when we're eating in the absence of hunger driven by emotions, hence the hedonic hunger. That's in contrast to homeostatic hunger, which is the survival mechanism that says, hey, my stomach's empty. Let's fill that up. Can you give us an example of someone you worked with who had a comfort eating habit and how your work was able to help them break the habit? Sure. Actually, we can go back to my patient that I talked about before that had panic disorder because the thing I didn't mention about him was that he, when he first came to see me, he was 400 pounds. He was at a very unhealthy weight and his weight was causing health issues for him. So he had a fatty liver, he had hypertension, he had obstructive sleep apnea, and all of these were related to how much he weighed. And so he had, you know, and, and as I mentioned before, he had started getting panic attacks when he was about 10. And early in life, he had started eating food as a way to try to uh, cope with his panic because he had he couldn't figure out a way to help it. And, you know, fast forward 30 years, he described that he was addicted to fast food. And so he would eat fast food as a way to cope with his anxiety. 
So we, in his first visit, we just mapped out these anxiety habit loops and I sent him home uh, and, and had him start mapping out these anxiety habit loops. And two weeks later at his first follow-up, he came back and he said, hey doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I looked at him because I didn't think that we had actually talked about uh, his his weight at that point. We were just focusing on his anxiety. And he said, yeah, yeah, we didn't talk about this, but I was mapping out my anxiety habit loops and I realized that anxiety was triggering me to eat fast food. And the fast food was actually just making my health anxiety worse. So I stopped doing that, as were in his words. And so the way I would put that is that he became disenchanted with eating fast food, right? It was no longer rewarding for him. Uh, it was actually anti-rewarding, if we can put it that way. And he, by becoming disenchanted, it was much easier for him to break that habit of eating as a way to cope with his anxiety. He went on to lose over 100 pounds over the next year and said it was the easiest weight loss he'd ever had because he tried everything before. Um, but once he had learned how his mind worked, he could learn you know, that he actually felt much better when he didn't eat fast food. And as he gradually lost weight, it was you know, getting him into a healthier, um, healthier range where his high blood pressure went away, he was sleeping better, his hypertension went down, you know, it was actually helping uh, him be healthier physically as well. Okay, now, Dr. Jada, I want to make sure that the people who are joining us and are listening, who are thinking, okay, I want to apply this in some way. I have this habit of eating, I don't know, just come up with uh, something, uh, potato chips. <laughs> Seems like, you know, I haven't, ha you know, I, I'm hungry, I drive to, the, you know, okay, I'll just pick them up on my way out yeah. of uh, the convenience store, whatever it might be. I know that I don't feel well afterwards, so I get that. I can map that out, and then mm -hmm. I feel bad about myself. I get all that. How is Dr. Judd's break a bad habit method here going to help me? Mm. What am I going to do? How am I going to work this on my own? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll illustrate this with an example and then walk, walk through how we can apply this. So I had a patient who used the entire bag of large bag of potato chips every night. Uh, while watching television with her daughter. And what I had her do was just start paying attention as she ate the potato chips. And I said, just see how many you need, you know, to, to satisfy, scratch that itch of craving. And for her, <laughs> you guess how many it took? I won't. I don't know. 20 chips? Make, yeah, it was actually two. Uh-huh. And for her... That was enough salt and fat when she truly paid attention. She was like, okay, that's enough for tonight. <laughs> and what that highlights for many people, it's probably not too. And so she's, you know, I remember her because it was a, you know, it was a pretty striking. I, I never imagined that she'd come back and say, yeah, it was just two doc. That was it. Uh, but what we can all notice is where we hit what I think of as, as our pleasure plateau. So. What that means is with each bite, we can pay attention and ask ourselves, is this better than, worse than, or the same as the last bite? And what that helps us do is, and I want to highlight, this is not about thinking, oh, I should only eat two bites of cookie or two potato chips, but this is really feeling. We have to feel into this. Our feeling body is much stronger and wiser than our thinking brain. And so here... We just feel into the experience when we eat the potato chip and we can really feel, you know, I'm just imagining this now, last time I had a potato chip, like for me, potato chips are pretty salty. <laughs> I haven't found a potato chip that's like not salty. And so within a couple of potato chips, especially if I'm not hungry, my body's like, whoa, okay, you've hit your salt quotient for, you know, for now. And it's much easier to, to put them down by imagining what it would be like to eat the next one. And so here we can really just leverage this power of awareness, this power of curiosity so that we can we can really see how much is enough. And we can do that in the moment with potato chips 
And then we can also look back. For example, if we haven't paid attention and we've eaten a whole bag, we can look at it afterwards and ask the question, what did I get from this? And here, you know, we even did a study where we have this app called Eat Right Now, and we have a, basically a, a awareness and where eating exercise is part of that, where we can use that to calculate the change in reward value in somebody's experience so that when that reward value drops below zero, they shift behavior. And it only takes about 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention, for example, as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to shift behavior. So pragmatically speaking, really the key thing to do or the key ingredient for behavior change is awareness. You know, we become aware of the habit loop. We become aware as we're eating and we ask this simple question, you know, whether it's how much is enough or what am I getting from this? So that we can really feel into our body and have our body tell us when we've had too much or whether it's, you know, it's a food that we're really just not as excited about now as we might have been before. Well, a, a couple things here. One is in the example you gave, you have to really slow down. I mean, we're talking about eating those two potato chips. You know, you're not just like shoving a bunch of them in your mouth kind yeah. of thing and then saying, I wonder how this feels. It's a, a yeah. serious, slow uh, eating with awareness process. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I would, yes, and I would say we don't have to spend 30 minutes eating a single potato chip, right? That's good. Yeah. So it doesn't take that long to eat a potato chip. And so as long as we pay careful attention, we're not distracted, we're not shoveling a bunch down, we can get the picture pretty quickly. Uh, one thing I'll add to that is if we're hungry, it's important to note that it takes about 15 to 20 minutes for our bodies to register satiety. And so if we're really hungry, there's, you know, our body's going to say whatever the food is, it's going to say, hey, get more calories in. And if we eat those really quickly and we don't give ourselves 15 or 20 minutes to register whether we've had enough, we're going to be more likely to eat beyond satiety. Now, you said curiosity is our superpower. And, you know, it seems like curiosity is sort of the the kale of our time, meaning <laughs> I hear people talking about curiosity all the time. And I wonder how much it lands. Like, do people understand what that means exactly? Like, what does it mean? I'm going to use this superpower of curiosity to change my bad habits. Mm -hmm. Really? What does it actually mean? Yeah. So first, well, let me ask you. Did you know that there are two different types of curiosity? Only because I read Unwinding Anxiety <laughs> do I know this. Okay. So had you not read the book? I, I did well, not know that. Okay. So I bring that forward because it's a great way to highlight the contrast between the two types. And so for anybody that, uh, that doesn't know that there are two types, what does it, you know, I'll, I'll just ask people to explore in their own experience. What does it feel like not to know? And that not knowing is actually one type of curiosity called deprivation curiosity, which in a nutshell means we're deprived of information. As I said earlier, our brains don't like uncertainty. And that is the mechanism that gets us you know, to go and do something to find that piece of information. And so that itch of what is that? I don't know. I need to go find that out. That's deprivation curiosity. And I mention that because that's not the curiosity that I'm talking about here. Certainly deprivation curiosity, very helpful for survival. But the curiosity that I think of as a superpower is the other type, which is called interest curiosity. And interest curiosity, I, I like to think of these as deprivation is like a destination. When you get that piece of information, you're at your destination, you're there, you're back to baseline. And so you're deprived, you're, you're, when you get to the destination, you're not deprived anymore. Interest curiosity, on the other hand, is more like the journey. It's the joy of discovery as we go along life. So we're not looking for any particular answer. We're just enjoying the learning process. And pragmatically, I, I don't assume that anybody knows exactly what curiosity is. But I like to have people really explore it in the moment. And let's use worry 
and anxiety as the as the examples where we can use the contrast. So if somebody feels anxious, the mind tends to go into have this, uh, let's say, mental tone of voice that says, oh, no, right? Oh, no, I'm anxious. How long is this going to last? What's going to happen? Where we start to worry. And that, oh, no, tends to feel more closed down and contracted. In contrast, interest curiosity is more of that, oh, what's this? And so we're not we're just exploring. And when we go, oh, what's this? We tend to lean in and we tend to open to our experience. And so we can look at that as a marker, that opening as a marker for uh, tapping into this natural capacity that we all have of interest curiosity. And so that's something we can all explore ourselves. I like the, I like to have people play with one of two mantras, whichever works best for them. One is that, oh, you know, when we're feeling, oh no, we can go, oh, what's that? Or another is, hmm, what's this? And that gets us out of our heads and into our direct experience. Like, hmm, really is a way to, um, to kind of tap into that natural interest curiosity. Is that, does that describe it enough? Yeah, I have a question though, which is, so let's say I'm experiencing, because I am, deprivation curiosity about solving anxiety forever <laughs> as an issue. I feel deprived <laughs> of that answer. And that yeah. makes me very curious. Yeah. And what's wrong with that? Why is that a problem? That's a type of curiosity. I want to get to the bottom of something. Mm -hmm. I feel deprived of the answer. Yeah. So again, deprivation curiosity, very helpful. And we can certainly look for answers. And if we find the answers, great. It's been very helpful. For something like anxiety, we can be looking our entire lives and not find it. And ironically, deprivation curiosity, when we're not getting the answer, can make us more anxious. Hmm. 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 <laughs> now I'm not going to say, hmm. I mean, that, that excited, hmm, I think is, feels a little far-fetched to me in some situations, mm -hmm. but the more subdued, hmm, I think I might be able to get there. That's interesting. Like, hmm, that's yeah. interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I want to know more about that. Yeah. And that, it doesn't, is that an interest curiosity? Hmm. Absolutely. I want to know more. Yeah. So I think of it as a scale. It's not like it has to be off the charts, you know, rainbows and unicorns. Wow. Oh, amazing. You know, like we're in awe, like, oh, wow. Isn't it amazing? I have anxiety. <laughs> but we can start wherever we are. And one thing that I've found helpful when somebody's like, I have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to curiosity, we just do this little exploration, which is, hmm, what's it feel like not to be curious? And with that, you know, we have them explore, hmm, I don't know, what does it feel like? And they're actually starting to tap into at least a little bit of curiosity in that moment. Okay, two more questions about unwinding anxiety. One, this, hmm, hmm, hmm. You mentioned in the book, Unwinding Anxiety, that we can use this, hmm, as a kind of mantra and actually bring the sound into our body in some way. And I found that I was very interested. My interest curiosity peaked highly at that point. And I wonder if you can share with our listeners how we do that. Yes. Well, it's as, so there are a couple of ways we can do that. I like the auditory mm, where we just, you know, it's kind of like warming up, you know, vocal exercises. <laughs> so, so we can warm up our curiosity just by going, Hmm. What's it like to, hmm. Or, oh, I wonder what it's like. How do I feel when I go, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of like me, 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 la, 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 <laughs> oh, you know, that type of thing. And the other thing that's so fascinating, I, I love science. There's so many interesting things about learning about our world. Uh, this actually goes back, I want to say that even Darwin wrote about this, but I may be wrong. Um, so if we look at our eyes, our eyes can be a big tell, not only in poker, but in life. 
And what I mean by that is we can look to see what our eyes are doing and how we've learned to associate different uh, eye patterns with different emotions. So for example, when we are angry, anger tends to be associated with focused behavior because it says, I don't like this, I'm going to make this change. And we can all think, you know, what's it like when we are angry? What do our eyes do? Well, our eyes tend to narrow down because we're not taking in information at that time. We're focused on action. In contrast to that, when we're really curious, what do our eyes do? They tend to open really wide. Oh, you know, our eyes open because they're taking in information. And so we can actually hack what's called somatic memory, right, where we've learned to associate different eye patterns with different emotions when we're not feeling that anxious or when we're not feeling that curious, we can actually open our eyes really wide and see if they actually help kickstart that process. It's kind of like, you know, um, uh, throwing a car in second gear, you know, as you roll down a hill to jumpstart it. Okay. I'm going to open my eyes, uh, really wide. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious about the title unwinding unwinding anxiety. I read that was your wife's idea, but mm -hmm. tell me about this image of unwinding. Mm -hmm. Well, with anxiety, we feel all wound up. We feel closed down. We feel contracted. And so when we bring curiosity in, we naturally let that spring, you know, when we're all wound up, springs are not, they're not, you know, from an entropic standpoint, springs want to naturally springs you know they want to become sprung or whatever the verb is for that and our bodies are not naturally prone to getting all contracted and wound up we do that to ourselves we add energy to the system and wind ourselves up and so here by bringing curiosity in for example and bringing kindness to ourselves we can naturally let that unwind and i think you know the my wife's title for that was it's just a beautiful portrayal of what naturally happens when we bring in you know curiosity and kindness to ourselves i've been talking to dr judson brewer he's the author of the new york times bestseller unwinding anxiety and a new book it's out on february 20th 2024 it's called the hunger habit why we eat when we're not hungry and how to stop. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Judd, because, you know, sometimes when I've spoken to people who are habit change experts, I don't feel the level of compassion and respect for early trauma and the kind of field of uh, love that you're bringing to the topic. And I so appreciate that. And it makes me feel really welcomed into the conversation and uh, optimistically curious about what will come from practicing your approach. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.